Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2? We're going to be looking at Philippians 2 today. We have been walking through 1 Samuel, and we're going to continue to preach through that. Philippians 2 is the sermon that we had chosen for, and we're going to preach last week at our church retreat. Half of the church was on the church retreat um, when the flooding started in Columbia, and so we dismissed the service that morning. We weren't able to have worship on Sunday morning last week, even where we were in North Carolina. And as I thought about this passage and the sermon I was going to preach to those who were on the retreat, I realized that after this week, this text is all the more fitting for our church family and for the ways in which God is calling us to serve the interests of our city. And so we're going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 2, but I just want to start us by reading a few verses, starting in verse 19. So I'm in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Hear now God's word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is what we want. We want to have the interests of Jesus. And that feels like a daunting task, but it's the very thing that you set your spirit to work within us. And so it's the very thing that we ask this morning. Would you use this text? Would you use your spirit? Would you use the power of your risen son to give us the mind of Christ? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, lately I've been reading a fantastic book entitled The Empire of the Summer Moon, and it's about a group of Native Americans called the Comanches. And the Comanches were some of the fiercest fighters that the world has ever known. They dominated the southern Great Plains, the area of Texas, from about the 1500s to the 1800s. Now, one of the things that made the Comanches so fierce is that they could fight and shoot on horseback. So this was at a time when cavalrys, the Spanish cavalry, the frontiersmen, the U.S. Army, would ride into battle on a horse, and then they would dismount so that they had a stable way to shoot. But the Comanches didn't need to do that. They could storm into battle and shoot from horseback, and they could shoot with a furious speed. A Comanche could shoot 10 arrows in the time it took a Kentucky, uh, a Kentucky rifle to be loaded and shot one time. So they have 10 arrows to the one musket, and this was they dominated this region. Actually, when I was first beginning to read this book, and I was reading about the terror of the Comanches and what they were able to do with the frontiersmen and actually roll back westward expansion in Texas for a season... I fell asleep reading this book, and Julie, who saw me, kind of came to take the book out of my hands, and I said in my sleep, babe, I am really afraid of the Comanches. <laughs> and she, that's, that's okay, sweetie, just go back to sleep. And I had nightmares about the Comanches. But another thing that made these guys so fierce is they had an avid interest in their fellow warrior. That from a very early age, you would learn as a Comanche warrior, you would actually learn how to ride a horse when you were four years old. And if you were a warrior, you were expected to begin to learn how to pick objects up off the ground at a full gallop. So you could fly by on your horse and begin to pick up small things and bigger and bigger and heavier things until the goal was that by the time you were of a fighting age, you could pick up a fallen warrior and take them to safety. And so there are so many stories about Comanches having these incredible acts of bravery to save a fellow soldier 
to save a warrior or to protect the women and children in these nomadic tribes. And this made a, a band of Comanches greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, when you saw this thing, it was a fierce movement in action. We're looking at Philippians chapter 2 today in a very less dramatic way, but a no less important way. Philippians 2 opens this seam in our own hearts when it asks about the interests that we harbor. What are the things that we harbor in our heart and how does that affect the person to the right and the person to the left when we're being called into this community known as the church? Now we know a little bit of the background of this letter. We know that Paul planted the church in Philippi. We can read about that story in Acts. And now Paul is in prison and he's concerned about the welfare of this church and he doesn't have access to them. And so he decides to send his faithful worker, Timothy. He sends Timothy ahead to get a report from this church to find out how they're doing. Well, in the verses I just read, Paul begins to describe Timothy and why it is that he's sending Timothy rather than anybody else to go and check on this church. And he describes Timothy as saying, I have no one like him. Look at verse 21. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And so in one verse, Paul is able to divide. He's talking about Christians here into two groups. He says, basically, you have a group of people that seek their own interests, but then I have this guy named Timothy who is not like them. There is such a thing as seeking the interests of Jesus. Those who seek their own interests, those who seek the interests of Jesus. Now, in verse 21, Paul doesn't really need to explain what it looks like for a person to seek their own interests. Isn't that interesting? He just kind of says that in passing because I think every single person in this room intuitively already understands exactly what he means. Every single person in this room knows what it looks like to be a person committed to self-interest. That, that's our default mechanism. That's how we operate in the world. We understand very deeply. You walk with me for an hour this week and you see what it looks like for a man to be deeply vested in his own self-interest. And Paul doesn't even need to explain that. He just says there are a swath of people who are, have self-interest. Napoleon was the one that said that men are moved by two levers only, fear and self-interest, and both of those are deeply related. They're all about me and my concerns. But he says over and against that, there's something called the interests of Jesus. And that's a, a profound phrase in verse 21, and it actually could occupy a lot of our time. I wonder what it would look like if we took out a blank sheet of paper as a church or this afternoon as individuals, and we said, what are the interests of Jesus? What does he mean when he says the interests of Jesus? What are the things that occupy Jesus' mind and his heart? Where is Jesus vested? If we listed all that we knew from the Gospels and the Epistles, what, how would we define the interests of Jesus? Well, in Philippians 2, we don't need to guess at what Paul means because he tells us immediately in this context, as he's describing Timothy, he says, this is the kind of person I'm talking about. And he says in verse 20, over and against those who seek their own interests is Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's verse 20, right before the verse we read in 21. According to Philippians 2 then, the interests of Jesus, when you think about the heart and the mind and the vested interest of Jesus, it is defined squarely in concern for the welfare of the church in the local city. When Paul says the interests of Jesus, that's one and the same thing as saying a person who is concerned for the welfare of the church in Philippi. 
That means that if we want to be interested in what Jesus is interested in, if we want to be described as verse 5, as having the mind of Christ that is ours in Christ Jesus, that looks like a life of more and more putting off self-interest, putting off the things that we do to guard ourself and our vested interests, and taking on the interests of others, particularly first within the church body that God has given us. These are the interests of Jesus, and this is how we operate in this world. To say to ourselves, you know what, this is just not right, the right season for that. I don't feel particularly gifted in that. I wish somebody else would kind of take the lead in being concerned about other people's interests. To say something like that would to warrant Paul's description in verse 21, they seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. That's a very simple idea that's being talked about in Philippians 2. I think we get that there can be two camps of people and that we spend most of the time in the former camp of self-interest. But I want to stop right there because we've got a situation on our hands in which the senior pastor has found a passage that says that our interests should be within the local church. And for you who are a member of CPC, for you who are a regular attender here, the front lines of our interests in fellow believers in the community that God has given us is right here in CPC. And so we got a situation here where we could take this passage and we could run with it. Because after all, I don't think there's a single person in this room who would say that they're doing enough, right? When you think about all the ways, and I've just been amazed by the wonderful ways in which this church has given itself, even this past week, to respond to neighbors and people in our city and people outside of this community who have great needs. Even as we look back over a week like this, there's not a single person who would say, there's not room for me to volunteer more and to give more, and to dedicate more, and to be more. Every single one of us sense within us that I do guard self-interest, and I don't do what I ought to do, and I should do more. In fact, Paul says in verse 17, look at this, I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. That's how Paul wants to describe his Christian life, as a drink offering that's being poured out on an altar. And who today would describe themselves in that way? In fact, that verse 17 of chapter 2, that verse has probably created more tension in my marriage than any other verse because it's an airtight case for more and more and more ministry. If you've got a verse like 17, there's no way to say stop and there's no way to make a boundary. And so this scene plays out constantly in my house where I say, hey, babe, we should have the Smiths over for dinner. And Julie says, absolutely not. It's a school night. I'm sick. The house is a wreck. We're not going to do that. And I say, babe, I'm just trying to be poured out as a drink offering on the offering of their faith. You mean to tell me we don't have anything in the fridge that we can just kind of whip together towards that end? And it becomes this tension because we all understand that we do not pour ourselves out as a drink offering. We don't do this. So we could very easily this morning pick that seam of guilt, say we have self-interest, We should have Jesus' interest, and we go in for the kill. If we created that kind of guilt within this church, I think we would get a little more busyness. I think some of us would jump up and we would actually volunteer for the nursery ministry. I think some of us would jump up and we'd lend a hand this week. I think some of us would respond and do something this week, but it wouldn't have the gravitational pull that Philippians 2 is looking for. It would be a disaster 
to pick a tidbit here or a timeless truth there when Philippians 2 is trying to disciple us into a new world in which we have the mind of Jesus. Any kind of knee-jerk, guilt-ridden volunteerism that, that quiets the greater thing that God is doing us in us through Philippians 2, that would be a disaster to settle for because God wants to make us look like his son Jesus and he wants to do that in the ways that we serve one another. Very simply, in Philippians 2, we're camped out in self-interest We have the goal of having Jesus' interest. And Paul is going to give us three steps, three movements in that direction. And I want to talk about them very, very briefly. He's going to give us the example that God gives. He's going to give us the means in which we can respond and do something. And then third and finally, he's going to give us the fruit of what he's going to do in us. First of all, God gives us an example. For when we think about the interests of Jesus, that gets very abstract very quickly. And so Paul grounds that in verse 4 and following. Read with me this very familiar passage. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. All of a sudden we understand that Jesus' death and resurrection, it doesn't just save us and launch us out into the Christian life, but it becomes a school, it becomes a crucible in which we come back and we are discipled into. We watch the way in which Jesus became nothing and died and lived to new life, and that changes the way we live and interact with each other. Because Jesus gives us the ultimate example of what it looks like to give up self-interest at great expense to himself for the interests of others. Jesus had a vested interest. Philippians 2 said that he had equality with God. He had a perfect relationship within the Trinity, and it was in Jesus' best interest to maintain that bond he had with the Father. But Jesus gave that up in the gospel at great expense to himself. The words are startling in our passage. Nothing, servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. This can be such a powerful passage for us because sometimes we describe the gospel like we would describe an accounting textbook. There was a debiting of sin here. There was a crediting of righteousness there. When meanwhile, Philippians 2 urges us to see that the gospel came at great cost, at great expense to Jesus because he became nothing and he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. And he did that for the interests of others. According to our passage, the greatest interest that we have that Jesus achieves in the gospel is a bowed knee and a confessing tongue. Because Jesus submitted himself to this kind of death, we now walk in newness of life. That is the ultimate example 
of giving up self-interest at great expense to ourselves for the interest of others. And all of a sudden, what could have been this abstract notion, this theological discussion about what are the interests of Jesus and what does the mind of Christ really look like, all of a sudden it becomes very concrete and very tangible when we watch Jesus precede us and do that very thing. So God gives us the example, but then he also gives us the means in which this is going to work out, and it's right in front of us. The means, the environment, the tool God is going to use to give us this mind of Christ is right in front of us. Verse 5, he says, you have the mind of Christ, now have the mind of Christ. It's already yours, you're born again, you get the mind of Christ, but you need to use it, you need to work it out, you need to grow it so that this mind will expand within you. Now, we think about that notion of growing the mind of Christ, and personally, I think oftentimes that that would happen in my devotional time. That is me in my prayer closet with Philippians 2 open, and I'm earnestly praying to God, give me the mind of Christ, give me the mind of Christ, this is what I want, I want the mind of Christ. But Paul counters in Philippians 2, and he says, the way, the means that we get the mind of Christ could not be more different than that. The way we get the mind of Christ is to look out for the interests of others. It is to be concerned about the welfare of the church and our city. It's to serve one another. When we lay down our lives, when we serve one another within this body, we gain the mind of Christ. If the mind of Christ is like a muscle, then I want you to picture the church as a pile of dumbbells. So look to your left right now, wherever you're seated. Look to your right. Dumbbell. Dumbbell. Some of us are bigger dumbbells than others, but these are the means, this is the gift, this is the tool God gives us to begin to work out this muscle, which is the mind of Christ. When you befriend a person, when you take keen interest into their spiritual growth, when that interest is at great cost to yourself, you are growing the mind of Christ that is yours in Christ Jesus. The church is a gift God gives us to grow the mind of Christ. It's a gift that God gives us to make us like Jesus. That's the entire context of what we're reading in this passage. Timothy would not have a way to demonstrate that unlike these others, he has the interests of Jesus were it not for the church in Philippi to be concerned about. That's a very tangible, practical concern. Paul is not saying Timothy just in general embodies interests of Jesus rather than self-interest. He says, no, 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 no. Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church in Philippi. Earlier in this passage that we read where he urges us to have the mind of Christ to Philippi, there would be no way for that church to work out this mind of Christ were it not for fellow church members to have their interests before their own interests. The church is the gift God gives to give us the mind of Christ. And so if you think about it, there are many days where it does not feel this way, but the church cannot possibly take more than it gives. We think about the hours that we vest in each other. We think about the money we spend. You think about the acts of mercy and the ways that we come to each other's aid. We think about the distress that we take upon ourselves to walk with somebody who's in sin and all the ways in which we give ourselves to the church. And I promise you that the church cannot possibly take more than it gives because the church is the means that God uses to give us the mind of Christ. And if you grow in the mind of Jesus, if you grow to look like the Son, what could you possibly give up that's worth that? 
This is the gift God gives us to use to grow the mind of Christ within us. So we're talking about interests. There's those who seek their own interests. There's those of the interest of Christ. The interest of Christ is a genuine concern for the welfare of the church in our city. For us, that begins with this local church, and it extends to the church of Christ, and then it extends to our city and our state. That's the way in which we do this. And God gives us the example. It's a son. He gives us the means. It's the church. And finally, he tells us the fruit that will come out of this. If you think about this, you could really take the first two steps towards others' interest as an unbeliever. If you are an unbeliever, if you are an unbeliever sitting here, we can all look to Jesus as an example, right? And some people often do. We can take Philippians 2, and even if we don't agree with the theology of it, we can say that Jesus was a a wonderful moral teacher, and we can learn from that example and become like him. A believer and an unbeliever can do that. Step two, to use the church as a means. An unbeliever can join a church and be an active member of a church. They can participate in serving one another. An unbeliever can do that. But it's the third movement in this passage that distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever when it describes the fruit that is going to come out of this kind of lifestyle. The fruit that God gives us by being interested in others before our own self-interest is a mutual joy between us and our Heavenly Father. That's the fruit that God gives us, and that is distinct of the Spirit's working, is that there will be mutual joy between us as a son or a daughter and our Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Can you imagine that? When God grows this mind in us by this example, using this means, it gives him pleasure. It makes God happy. When he works these things out in us, when he sees us grow in this way, he is the brimming with pride father. It makes God happy to see his sons and daughters act in this way. And God's pleasure gives us pleasure. It has that effect on us. Paul warns us in verse 14, I don't want you to cheapen this process. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Don't do that. Rather, in verse 17, in serving others, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. I want to fight for your joy in serving one another. You remember as a little kid that one of the most delightful things in the world was to get the attention and the admiration of an adult. Doesn't matter what you're doing, you just want an adult to see it. Because if an adult doesn't see it and recognize it, it feels like it didn't happen. You're at the table, you're saying, watch me, watch me, watch me. And an adult comes over and looks over your shoulder and says, wow, you drew a square, that's cool. And you're just, you couldn't be happier. That's the image that we're getting right here. Our Heavenly Father, when he shows us this example, when he gives us this means, when we start to step outside of ourselves because it's him who's working in us, he is the brimming with pride father that sees this in us and we could not be happier. That's the joy we have as believers to have the mind of Christ. Now I want to make a very particular application from that point and it's a dangerous one. Because I know the second I say it, it could be misinterpreted, it could be misconstrued, you could take it a thousand different directions, but I think Philippians 2 compels us to make an application of this sort, and that is this, here we go, don't serve beyond your happiness. Don't serve one another beyond your joy. 
Don't outstrip the mutual joy that you have between the Father to do something for another person. Don't serve, give, sacrifice. Busy yourself into a corner of grumbling and self-pity and resentment because nobody wants that. We don't want that. You don't want that. God doesn't want that. That is not the mind of Christ that God is giving us according to Philippians 2. You could serve out of resentment, but that's kind of like running a car without oil. You can do that, and you can actually do that for longer than you might think, but you're not going to like the results. It will destroy you. The fruit that God gives in the kind of service that we're talking about, laying down and dying to ourselves for the interests of others, is a work that is going to bear the fruit of joy between us and our Father. I saw a great illustration of this two weeks ago through my son, who has actually joined the uh, Columbia College swim team. So he's swimming. He's eight years old, but he's working his way up to swim on a swim team with anybody, students all the way through high school. And so basically at Columbia College, they have a big kid pool and a little kid pool. And a little kid pool you can stand up in because that's where you change a dog paddle into real strokes. And so Judah, this is his first time swimming. And so he's in the little kid pool and he's He's doing awesome. I mean, he's learning how to do the freestyle, and he's advancing very quickly. And so last week, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know this was going to happen. You've got a room full of kids swimming, most of them in the big kid pool. And Coach Laurie, who's over the whole thing, says, I want everybody to stop what you're doing. Because I want to move Judah to the big kid pool to swim one lap and see if he can do it. Well, Judy gets out of the little kid pool, and he, he looks like a little speck on the other side of the, the pool room. And all the kids that are in the pool swimming back and forth, all these high school kids, they just go bananas. I mean, they start to cheer. They start to shout. They're chanting, Judah, Judah. And I walk, watch my son. I'm like trembling, holding up my phone, watching him walk all the way across the pool. And he gets in the deep end and he gets his kickboard out and he kicks across the full length of the pool to the cheers of this entire room. And he gets to the other side and he climbs out and I just see his little chest heaving. He's so tired from swimming the length of the pool, but he's just beaming ear to ear. He couldn't be happier. If you would have pulled Judah aside and you would have said, son, I need you for the sake of your teammates to do that a hundred more times. I promise you Judah would have jumped in that pool and he would have died trying to swim a hundred more laps. It was this vision of someone at great sacrifice and expense to themselves for the joy of what God is doing through this group of people to do and to engage in this way. This is precisely what God is promising. He wants us to will and to work. He's going to want us to want and to work for his good pleasure. When he gives us the mind of Christ, when we lay down our lives for another person, we share a mutual joy between us and our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us the ways, even this week, even today, where our response in self-interest is to serve out of resentment and it's to serve out of self-pity and it's to serve with grumbling. That's not what you want for us, Lord. You want to make us like your son, Jesus. You want us to give us the joy of serving one another and I pray that you would do that in our body. Make us a body who enjoys our work with you in these weeks and months to come. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.